Hi, I'm Dr. Tona Ribera. I serve as the Director of Educational Assessment at Marion University, and welcome to this episode of Data Talk. Whether you are staff, faculty, or a student, you know that there can be so much fatigue when it comes to surveys, evaluations. You are asked to complete so many things, but often never hear back about the findings and how findings are used on campus. Data Talk seeks to highlight the people on campus involved in assessment, the people who read your responses to various assessments, and use data to inform curricular and co-curricular improvements. Our guest today is Dr. Sarah Zoll. Sarah is the Assistant Dean for Accreditation and Assessment at the Marion University College of Osteopathic Medicine and an Assistant Professor of Family Medicine and Education. Sarah earned her bachelor's in journalism and public relations from Butler University and earned both her master's and PhD in higher education student affairs from Indiana University. She has taught first year seminars and courses in research methods and college teaching and learning. Sarah is all welcome to Data Talk. Thank you. Happy to be here. So, Sarah, I really want to talk about this year's Assessment Institute and the Assessment Institute in general. But before we we get into that, I have a couple of questions to help me and the listener learn more about you and your work. So you have written about medical students' experiences with and perceptions of research. What are some of the perceived barriers and how can medical schools better incentivize research, in your opinion? Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. So there have been a couple of publications that have come out of our work to look into pieces around students who have participated in research and then what barriers might be for students and their participation. So a few barriers that we've recognized through our research is financial barrier. Mm -hmm. So certainly there are students who from our survey and from our focus group indicated that the financial component was really important to them in order to be able to conduct research or be able to present their research at a conference or something like that. So that's a barrier that we are working to address through some funding and a small grant that we were able to get as a result of this work. Another barrier is probably not surprisingly just finding the time because medical students have so many competing priorities as all students do. But I think medical students in particular, especially as they get to years three and four and they're in the clinical environment, They really can't find time to even do things that they want to do on a daily basis, but research just feels kind of onerous in addition to their priorities. So a lot of the things they talked about were how can we integrate it more into our culture from the beginning to make it just part of their priorities and their time, but really talking about where do I fit it in? I value it. I think it's important, but how can I fit that in alongside my other coursework? One piece that was articulated as a barrier, but it kind of became a way to incentivize would be a credit bearing option Mm. for research, uh, because currently in our structure, there were not credit bearing options for students to do research in years one and two. And so we've worked through how we might be able to support that through credits that appear on a transcript that students can then share on CVs or resumes um, in order to increase their ability when they get to the match eventually. And so really making sure that it's something that appears on their transcript at the university level rather than just something they could talk about themselves, but showing that we as a community and as a campus value it by putting some credit behind it. 
Yeah. So those were a few things that came up. And you recently co-authored an article in Anatomical Sciences and Education about virtual microscopy podcast and histology. Can you tell me a little about your study and what you all learned? Sure. Um, so virtual microscopy has been around for a few years. It's something that has been maybe a more recent development as schools have moved from traditional microscopes in learning anatomy and histology, but it has been around for a little while. But what we explored is how can we help students study for exams by building additional resources and options for them in virtual microscopy. And so we looked at student performance related to how often students were utilizing these resources. We looked at performance on quizzes and performance on exams and looked at the intervention of using these resources. And so probably not a surprise, we found that as students use their resources, their scores tended to go up. And we looked at multiple cohorts, so it wasn't just isolated to a particular year because, of course, there are confounding pieces around changes in curriculum and all sorts of things. So we tried to control for that the best we could. But clearly, if they were utilizing the resources and applying what they had learned mm -hmm. in their classes, in their anatomy lab and um, their didactic components of the curriculum, we saw a benefit to that in our research. That was a, a really fun study that... We had that hypothesis that probably students who utilize the resources would show gains, and that's exactly what happened. So we've continued to build, not primarily not me, the anatomy faculty, I have to give them the credit for it, have built that in to the regular curriculum yeah, to offer to our students as support. So in addition to your scholarship on medical education, you've also published an assessment overall. In the second edition of Trends in Assessment, you co-authored a chapter titled The Evolving Impact of Authentic Assessment Practices in Graduate and Professional Education. So in this chapter, you talk a lot about uh, interprofessional education. You know, I'm curious, kind of bringing it back to Marion, what do you think Marion does exceptionally well when it comes to interprofessional education and how do you see us improving over the, the next five years? Yeah, that's a great question. I think we have really tried in health professions to ensure that students have IPE experiences every year, mm. at least in the medical school. Um, we often collaborate with students in nursing because we're co-located and it just makes sense with how students will collaborate in the clinical setting. We also have an IPE experience with Butler with the pharmacy students because they're right down the road. Um, so our faculty have coordinated all of those activities so that students have that exposure across the curriculum. One of the recent experiences that our faculty have planned is called the early clinical exposure experience. So even as early as year one in our curriculum, students are out in the hospital setting um, working with people that maybe they have not worked with previously. So it might be nurses, it might be staff who come in and clean the rooms, it might be any support staff in the hospital. So really even very early on giving them insight if they've not had it previously into all the roles that are involved in patient care mm -hmm. and to understand what it really takes uh, to make a place run and, and to support patients. So really being intentional about students having that exposure early in addition to what we already do in the curriculum. And I think, you know, related to our experiences with nursing, I think that just lends itself to a really great opportunity for uh, medical students to learn from nursing students and then the other side, nursing students to learn from yeah future doctors. So I think we are continuing to have conversations about how we make it more authentic 
if we can. And that's one of the pieces that we discussed in the chapter is I think especially during the COVID era when everyone had to go online to do IPE. And there are certain things you can do virtually, of course, breakout rooms that that people can um, be involved in conversations in other ways. But I think the convenience of some of those platforms has lingered a little bit and that's okay but really challenging ourselves to make the setting as authentic as possible and then the reflection component as authentic as possible so that we have that assessment of a student's personal reflection of their own growth through multiple IP experiences or a single IP experience so they can learn more about themselves um, and how applying what they learned in that IP experience can eventually translate to how they might perceive others in patient care teams and practice. And I mean, just talking about authentic assessment, what do you think assessment professionals can do to better support and encourage faculty in their efforts engaging in authentic assessment? Yeah, that's a good question because I think from the faculty perspective, it's really hard sometimes because it takes a lot of person power and it takes a lot of financial resources sometimes to be able to really make this as authentic as possible. And so sometimes I think our structures limit us a little bit and being able to do that around finding the time to really make it a longer experience that would be worthwhile and ensuring that we have enough faculty to make it a realistic experience in like our simulation center or out in the clinic. Um, we, We are fortunate to have a wonderful simulation center here that allows us to create a clinical environment and clinical scenarios. So I think just as an assessment person, just offering support and being willing to have open conversations about opportunities that we see and how we can build not only that reflection component, but are there other ways we can assess what students are actually learning outside of a reflection? Because I think, of course, there needs to be a reflective component related to IP and professional formation, but what else can we do to level up how we're assessing the intended outcomes of that experience. And so maybe they do reflections related to the individual IP experiences, but once they get later in the curriculum and we can combine what they learned across all of those years related to IPE, maybe some other type of assessment that is more authentic in nature where they can be observed and interacting in different ways. And we do that through OSCEs. But maybe just a few more layers of the professional interaction piece in a group setting with other practitioners and really honing in on that and making sure we can observe those professional behaviors beyond a reflection. I wanted to ask, you know, going back to your chapter, you also talk about dissertation writing. You say in the chapter, with the increasing focus on authentic assessments that lead to transferable skills, it is evident that the dissertation needs reform and alternative methods should be considered. I'm just kind of curious, if you were named the chair of a brand new higher education and student affairs program tomorrow, how would you design their summative assessment? Yeah, in a dream world, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think the dissertation just hangs on because yeah. there's a deep-rooted history in creating a piece of work related to your own individual research and being able to produce that as a culminating experience. And so I'm not fully discounting the outcomes of that experience. It's a wonderful learning experience that can sometimes be painful for multiple students. But I think because oftentimes the dissertation is expected to lead to publications. And so I think the pressure that puts on new graduates who are also integrating into a new professional space is probably quite 
a lot. And so I think if it could be replaced by more of a capstone experience where you come away even with smaller pieces that could be shared as part of a portfolio or your job seeking experience that show evidence of your learning, they show evidence of your ability to do research, but it doesn't have to be a 400, 500 page document. You spend years and years on that, you know, to complete it. And maybe the dissertation can still be possible for a certain track of students but offering a different alternative to still do research, but maybe it's a smaller or multiple smaller pieces related to research and still contributing to the literature in the field potentially down the road, but not that pressure of a, you know, longer than a novel, you know, piece of research that takes so long. Um, I think that would be an okay replacement if I had my way. Can you speak to the process? Because you were able to publish your dissertation. So how did you take this humongous document and and get it down to 20 pages? Yeah, I feel as if I've wiped some of that out of my brain somehow. (laughs) I don't know if it's a coping strategy or what. But I do remember working with mentors, of course, because I had wonderful mentors through my experience. And my faculty advisor from a dissertation was Dr. Torres, who was amazing. But I remember thinking, I did all of this work. I want to get at least one publication out of this. And so the way I handled it is I produced pieces of it for conference presentations related to my work. And then I used those conference presentations. And I think one of the indicators of a successful presentation is who comes up to you afterwards to ask a lot of questions about your work and your research. So... I started utilizing those conversations as my driver to dig a little deeper around what would be most useful to contribute to the literature in that area. And so that's what I did. I started small in shifting that giant piece into conference presentations that I could highlight and then building on that and extracting components of the dissertation to lead to a smaller publication. And so I did, thank you, I did get one publication out of it, and I am still interested in that area of work, and I'm fortunate that the work I do aligns with a lot of the work I did for my dissertation. So I think that's a beautiful thing if you can relate your work to the research that you did and be able to talk about it in various spaces. I know that doesn't always happen. Some of us end up going down a a little bit of a different path, and so you feel as if you're leaving a piece behind that you might not pick up again. But I was fortunate to be able to have those conversations regularly and then build it into a piece. So your dissertation, it looked at the role of community for part-time doctoral students and how a sense of community is related to student persistence. So what did you learn about community from your study? Well, it's a very unique experience for part-time doctoral students. There are lots of part-time doctoral students, but when I wrote my dissertation, we, because I was one of them, were kind of invisible in the literature, or there was just some literature emerging about the part-time student experience. And I think even now that that's been 10 years ago, which I can't believe, (laughs) there are more and more part-time students. It's just becoming more prevalent that people work alongside their doctoral experience. And so what I found is... And there's a little bit of work around this that's was there a little bit before I started by Gardner and then more and more that's come out since then. But it really is around, you know, students have to feel that they belong 
and their scene, which is not really quite different from the undergrad literature, but really finding a place where you feel accepted in unique ways. Because as a part-time student, you might have unique needs that maybe aren't being met. You have families, you have life situations. Again, not unlike undergraduate students either, but really feeling supported and seen and finding your people and not hearing, because there were some things that came up through my work and my qualitative interviews around just not feeling as if the part-time experience was honored as much as the full-time experience because many people articulated that they just felt like the curriculum or the experience still was tailored toward a full-time student who Mm -hmm. could sort of drop out of life and do this solely as their experience. But if somebody usually a faculty mentor, could see the student for their potential. And maybe it takes part-time students a little longer because of the number of credit hours you can take. But really valuing perspective and contributions at the same level as a full-time student. It was interesting reading it as a former full-time student and thinking back to 10 years ago and thinking about people like you and Corey Klausman. I mean, I didn't think like, oh, these people are in my cohort, you know. And I don't know if, just in hearing you say that, I don't know that it's evident. It's not like we came into class and disclosed, like, I'm a part-timer, you're a full-timer, you know, that division. I think we just built community in the way that we knew how to do it. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. So for the focus of this episode, we wanted to talk about the 2023 Assessment Institute, which just finished up in Indianapolis this past month. Um, So the Assessment Institute is the oldest and largest U.S. event focused on assessment and improving higher education. Graduate students, faculty, student affairs professionals, administrators, anyone with an interest in assessment is encouraged to attend. Session topics really range from course level assessment methods to institution-wide data collection and use to emerging trends in assessment. Both Sarah and I went to the Assessment Institute, so we just wanted to chat a little bit about it. So I wanted to start by asking you, I know that Trudy Bonta has been so crucial to the success of the Assessment Institute, and I know that she was a former instructor of yours and was a committee member on your dissertation. Can you talk a little bit about the the impact Trudy's had on you? Sure. Yeah, I think that's hard to summarize in a quick way because, you know, sometimes we really can't see the power of a mentor until several years later. We knew in working with her how fortunate I was, but I don't think I knew as a student the way that she has supported communities, even at the international level. And so sometimes you graduate from a program and you're out in the larger landscape and you realize like, whoa, I'm really fortunate to have this person as a mentor and you didn't even realize that. So she was the the first person that I interacted with that I saw like joy assessment. And so I think one of the ways that she's had a major impact on me is, now she was one of the pioneers for sure, but sometimes I hear the question, and maybe you do too, is how did you get here? Did you just end up in assessment? Like, did you try a bunch of things that didn't work out and then you just got here? Why would you choose this? You know, and I always laugh at that a little bit because I think people actually believe that about people like us. This isn't something we love, but we just got here because nothing else worked. But I bring that up specifically because I did choose this. In some ways, in higher ed, it finds us too, but I think it's a combination of that. But she's one of the first people that I worked with, and I thought, all right, she sees joy in this. She shared that through her teaching, through her mentorship. And so that led me to thinking, oh, maybe I'm going to find joy in this. Maybe I need to spend some more time in this track, in this route, 
and figure out if this is something that'll work for me. So that, in addition to her layers and layers of research and assessment yeah. and learning from her writings and her books and her teachings, um, pretty amazing person. So I feel really fortunate that I had her as a mentor and still do because I still see her, yeah. you know, yeah. at conferences and in other spaces. And she just comes up and chats and is a normal human and checks in about how things are going. That's really cool just to still have her as someone who is still encouraging me in a gentle way, but making sure that I don't need anything. And I know she would step in if I did. So I really appreciate that about her. Yeah, I saw her at the Assessment Institute and got to talk to her and it was cool. Yeah. But yeah, you're totally right. I mean, I felt grateful in the moment when I was at IU, but then like looking back and all these faculty members, Rudy, Nancy Chisholm, I mean, the list goes on and I'm just like, well, that, that's crazy. You don't realize it. You know, I've had the fortunate experience of being one of the track organizers for the yeah. Assessment Institute. So I'm one of the organizers for the grad and professional track, but I remember there's a, a dinner for the organizers and people who are awardees or honorees or have contributed to the Assessment Institute. And I remember the first dinner and I walk in there as a, you know, this was seven, eight years ago and I'm in this room and I'm looking around like I read your book and your yeah. book and your book. And now I'm in this room and the awe that I had, I was almost speechless at first when I said like, how did I get here? Yeah. How do I deserve to be here? And so I had that imposter syndrome that just kind of lingers. Um, yeah. But then I just sat there and I was just so appreciative of like all these people um, that have contributed to that space and the legacy really of all those individuals that we can carry on now yeah. um, through being part of this work and, and through the Institute. So yeah. I just remember that dinner very clearly and going home and, and just saying to my husband, like, whoa, yeah. this is so nice. <laughs> you know, I wanted to ask you about serving as a coordinator of the graduate and professional education track. So you've served in this role for several years yes. and it, it looks like the different people that you've worked with on that track seems to kind of rotate, but you've been steady for the last couple of years. And I'm just curious, what have you learned from serving in this role? A lot. Yeah. I think it's really, I have a view of not only what is presented, because that's one of the pieces we do as part of our work is selecting the presentations and vetting the presentations as part of our track. But it's really cool, nerdy cool, mm -hmm. to be able to see what people are submitting and sort of the trending and then also what stays the same. The trending of how even the language changes year over year and how things also stay the same, which I know sounds a little bit bizarre. But as you know, we tend to call things different things, but sure. say the same thing yeah. at the same time. So that in itself, I think, is comforting in attending the conference or being one of the organizers of a track is sort of validation of we're all facing the same challenges regularly in assessment. We all have drivers from national state requirements, accreditation, et cetera. We all have some of the same challenges around faculty development, onboarding, making our data tell a story, pulling multiple pieces together into one cohesive story of how our students are learning. And so I think all of that comes with this. And so I really appreciate the opportunity too. I know you mentioned that the crew that leads that group has changed over. I think there's value in that as well because mm. we have different perspectives in grad and professional education based on the areas in which we work. And so that has been really nice professional development as well for me to be integrated and have conversations with those people because we also select a keynote speaker every institute. 
And so sometimes we have someone in mind and sometimes it is a landscape review of someone who is, you know, speaking about something that we think would be important. Um, that's also a learning experience and then getting to hear from people who are leaders in that area. So um, it's really great to be part of that. I was able to see uh, really good sessions during the Assessment Institute. Were there any sessions or keynote speeches or anything that you found especially impactful this year? Yes. So I attended a couple of presentations around pulling together multiple data sources into a single database that was usable. Mm -hmm. I think we all look for some sort of technology solution to pull in from multiple sources to look at a story that we can tell with student outcomes and student performance. And I don't think one system ever sure. exists that can do all of those yeah. things. So I like to attend those types of sessions and see if there is some answer you yeah. know, that we can pick up on. But I attended a couple of sessions about just that. And maybe we, I don't want to say we're trying too hard to tell a certain story through a certain lens, because I think we tell multiple stories through assessment or answer multiple research yeah. questions, depending on what it is. But really trying to not only put it in a platform that's usable for our faculty and our administrators, but making sure we have the culture change mm -hmm. to utilize that. But I think I tend to try to tell that story in a way that everybody can find meaningful, mm -hmm. but I don't think that's really what we always have to do, right? I think there's different meaning of assessment data in different spaces, even within the same school, within yeah. my space. And so I think just thinking through that, like what's most usable to curriculum committee versus what might be most usable to associate deans that have a lot of people that report to them, that do a lot of goal setting. Right. So maybe the answers are within smaller pockets. So I did learn from those presentations to Make sure we're not siloing, but make sure we're also not putting so much into one space that mm. isn't usable to the largest right. number of people. Yeah, I think back to different presentations or different things I've done, and often I'm like, I missed the mark there when it comes mm -hmm. to how to use this or how to best tell this story and for this different audience. And it's a really tough balancing act. One session that was impactful to me was um, I attended a session looking at a, a faculty development program in a medical school, and they used propensity score matching to estimate the program's effect on faculty likelihood of achieving promotion and tenure. And it was great. Yeah, I, I definitely left feeling like, oh, geez, I got to learn that. Oh, I, I got to learn something new because so often people will ask, oh, I want to see the impact of this program I did in student orientation. And I'm like, well, there's so much that a student experiences over the four years. Mm -hmm. I can't isolate it to your program, but with their study and what they were doing, it looks like there's ways to look at that and to pull that information out. So I thought it was really interesting. Did you see kind of anybody else from IU? And, I yeah. did, yeah. yeah. I think that's one of the great things about that conference as well, is you can see friends and yeah. they're still current friends for sure. but. Just being among people that you haven't seen for so long and just reconnecting, even if it's for a brief 10 minutes, but reconnecting about life and we're sort of all over the place, right? Yeah, but, yeah. you know, land in one city, at least for one conference. So that's really nice to yeah. be able to reconnect, yeah. see people in passing or see them in the same sessions and just chat for a few minutes. Oh, very cool. 
Well, I appreciate you making time to talk with me. Um, For all the listeners, the 2024 Assessment Institute will be held at the Indianapolis Marriott Downtown Hotel from October 27th to the 29th of 2024. And the call for proposals just went out. So if you are interested, consider submitting a proposal on or before the priority deadline of Friday, March 1st. And if you have any thoughts about assessment findings that you would like us to discuss on future episodes of Data Talk, please feel free to email me at tribera at marion.edu. Thank you, Sarah, and thank you to all the listeners for listening to this episode of Data Talk. Thanks for inviting me.